0: For the call to worship this morning, I'll be reading from 2 Corinthians, chapter four, verses four through six. I'm reading from the New International Version. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for jesus sake for god who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of god's glory displayed in the face of christ today's scripture is found in genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 and it reads then god said Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Today's New Testament reading can be found in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, on page 1,107 in your pew Bible. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. A couple of weeks ago, I came back from sabbatical And I asked you the question that was at the heart of what we would call the One Project, the young adult movement that's sweeping through our church in which, given the divisions, the polarities, the politics, the right and the left, young adults are gathering to ask, what's center for you? And proposing that Jesus Christ, his life, ministry, teachings, resources— might be the answer. Jesus one, Jesus all. It's a powerful idea. I noted that there is perhaps a risk in this, in that we must never take the ministry or person of Jesus out of context. And the context is the larger story of God. The story of Jesus is the story of a Jew set in the history of Israel. And the story of Israel and the Jewish people is a story of God's promise and interaction with Abraham who had yet to become a Jew. And the story of those people ancient and modern is set within the larger picture of the story of God and humanity. And this is where theology, Christology, and anthropology all come together. Today I want to focus a little bit on the theological aspect that I think you'll agree if you you listen has been occluded maybe a bit We've been so Christological in our emphasis, so Christ-centered in our emphasis, that we've neglected at times the larger context of the story. Last week, I asked you a very key question, and I hope it's been spinning in your heads all week long. If not, I'm going to ask it again and see if it sticks a little better this time. Not just what is center for you, but does the story of God, the story of Christ incarnate, the story of God's love made flesh and dwelling among us, the story of self sacrificing love in Christ going to Calvary, the story of the resurrection and life anticipated anew and to come, does this story still have meaning? does it still have meaning in your life and context? And what I suggested last week was that that seems to be functionally one story among many stories that compete for our attention. Our culture is crowded, crammed, just jam-packed with options of things to do and organize our time and our lives around. Many of them are worthy This is not to suggest that they aren't. But out of the many worthy pursuits, how does our priority get reflected? Are we really able to embody and live out the gospel in any kind of meaningful way? Because that would tell us the real truth about how viable and how important the story is. If we can say, yeah, great story, I like it, I've grown up with it, it's meaningful, I cry every time I hear it. Um, if we understood it to be situated in salvation history and God's election and call, if we, if we placed it in the context of, of the commandments and the law being a delight and Sabbath being a delight and pleasure, how would our lives in their order reflect those things. One thing to speak, right? It's another thing to live. So out of those kinds of ideas that have been tossed around the last couple of weeks and that I hope we're all giving some thought to, I wanted to talk about God in particular. And I chose a title that uh, reflects sort of where I'm going with this down the road just a pace. I didn't use the term embodiment but I used the term imaged. Now, when we think of image, we often think of idolatry. When we think of God, we think of God as spirit, right? God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit and truth. So we think of God as sort of a disembodied something, or we have the kind of classic old man with the white beard syndrome thing going, sitting on the throne somewhere, right? Isn't this pretty much the imagery we draw? God forbids us to image him. He forbids us to create something that's meant to convey his likeness. He forbids us from worshiping anything that we make with our own hands. Now, I would suggest that idolatry takes more than the form of simple wooden or metal or other objects that would be stuck in a crutch. When we work with our hands... Is our work, our God, is the work that we do to earn a living the most important and defining thing that we have in our lives? Is that the story that we're organized around? What's the outcome of that story? Where does it lead? What does it look like? What does it mean? Where do we go with that? Idolatry can be The prioritization of anything before the living God, as as you well know. So if God is not to be imaged, why would I entitle my sermon the imaged God? And that is because God has imaged himself. The Genesis text we read is instructive in this way. You've heard it a million times. The story of creation, and when it comes to the sixth day, God says, let us make man in our image now there is a lot of work that can be done with the word image imago a lot of work but an imaged God that is to say a God who images himself is different than us trying to image God and so in this moment of the creative act the text is really clear It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So it is neither man nor woman that is the image of God. We mustn't think of God, per se, in terms of gender, but we might think of God as the union of man and woman, the completion of the two, the polarities that are brought together in gender. We don't have any other category for doing so. You see, when we are made flesh and mortal and when we will have a beginning and, and an end and when our reality is shaped in great part by our own corporeal bodies and the material around us, we can't generally transcend those categories. We have to think of God within the categories we were cre- of creation. And so for us... We speak anthropomorphically the face of God, the hands of God. We speak of God very often in imaged terms, human terms. But we can do so with some degree of safety because we are told explicitly that we are His image, made in His likeness, not by virtue of one gender or the other, but by virtue of both. Now this should have incredible ramifications for us. As created beings in a created world, it has ramifications for the way in which we treat the planet, ramifications for gender equality and recent illustration, women's ordination, ramifications for a host of other things that come out of a theocentric creation story in which we are imaged. God is imaged in us. God is also imaged in another way. Scriptures tell us God sent his Son that none of us might perish but have life. And in sending his Son, Christ becomes the most accurate, most complete, most perfect representation of Of God ever seen not by virtue of the details of his face you'll notice that in scripture nowhere does it say his nose hooked a little to the left that he had sunken eyes or that he had dark brown eyebrows and beard it doesn't specify when God is imaged in Revelation it's with white hair like wool and his eyes are like fire and we're talking about a different level of being just as we're talking about a different level of city and a different level of life and experience. That's future-imaged. But Jesus comes as the most complete and total representation of the Father. Now notice that Jesus doesn't send himself. He's sent to the Father, that's the context. And he's sent into the story of humanity in the context of a salvation narrative in which Abraham has been called and given a land and an inheritance and asked to do certain things that would set his people apart. It is with this people and to this people that the law has been presented and that portion of God's will and character revealed. It is through this that salvation comes to the Jews, not just law, but the promise that precedes it, the election that precedes it. By faith, Abraham, Paul says. And so Abraham is saved by faith as a Gentile into becoming a Jew, same as any of the rest of us. God interacting with humankind in salvation history. There's a lot of power in these passages As we read Hebrews this morning, we heard the phrase, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In Corinthians, we heard Christ, who is the image of God and God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So God is imaged for us in these ways. But in order to set the gospel in context, in order to set the good news in context, in order to understand what it means to be one who embodies the story of God and man, to embody salvation's story, to carry on with the name of Christ as Christians, we need to back up just a little and review the gospel, not of Christ but the gospel of God. Turn to Romans 1.1 really quickly. I'll give you a minute to get there. Romans 1.1. None of the passages I'm going to move you to this morning are long, but if you'll just take a few minutes to look at those with me, I think they'll hit you in a way that they never have before, just as they've hit me in a way that they never have before. They are explicitly theocentric, God-centered. Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set forth or set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? No. Isn't that what you would want to complete the sentence with normally? I think so. That's what we say most commonly. We say the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the text doesn't say that. It says the gospel of God. The gospel of God. The one in whom the story of Christ is set. Mark, four, Mark 1. Just flip a few chapters back over to Mark 1. And I'm not trying to proof text this, but I'm pulling up these phrases because I think when, I, when we read devotionally, when we read casually, or even when we read for study, it's easy to miss these details in the translation and text that may have great implications for the way in which we think and frame things. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, I don't have page numbers for you, but this says in your pew Bible. It says, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So when we speak of good news in the context of Jesus' ministry, it's not the good news of Jesus. It's the good news of God and the kingdom that has come near. Is that true? That's exactly right. And has the kingdom always been present? Yes, but it is now especially near because Jesus is the embodiment of God. Jesus is the imaging of God, the image of God coming to us, representing the good news and the Father in a very particular way. It is Buttrick who kind of reminded me that the story of Christ is set within the story of Israel, which is set within the story of God and humanity. It was Colwell who reminded me that it was Jesus' mission in history to make God known and available to each of us. And it's Bultmann who, with his theological acuity and insight, said, Christian missionary preaching to the Gentile world could not simply be the Christological charisma, and I'll unpack that for you in a minute. Rather, it had to begin with the proclamation of the one God. Last week's text, Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is the starting point of proclamation. That's what kerygma is, by the way. Kerygma is proclamation. It's the telling of something, the announcing of something. So when we speak of a Christological kerygma, we're talking about the announcement of the kingdom of God as brought to us in Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. So what Buchmann is is reminding us in very uh, theological-type language, and I'm trying to bring into uh, preaching-type language, language we can all relate to, is that prior to the good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he was bringing even nearer and representing, we have proclamation in the one God, the idea of the one God, and God's work in salvation history prior. Luke, Paul, others, they rooted their stories of Jesus in this fact. You've heard me quote Acts 17 many times, but flip over to Acts 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Dr. Luke is writing, and in Acts 17, he begins Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Athens, right next to the Acropolis. The temple of Zeus at the entry of the Acropolis is just meters away. The famous temple of Diana with its kyriades, those beautiful female images making up the pillars of the small temple, are a few hundred yards away. Paul is standing and addressing the men of Athens, the people of Athens. I see that you are very religious, he says, and that you have an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that. And then he begins, verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life, everyone life, and breath and everything else. Coming back to creation. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. God imaged in us. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Paul is speaking of Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead Christology set in theology the story of Christ set in the context of the story of God 2nd Corinthians says this but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere Have you ever been in the vicinity of a great bakery? I know that you have. Call it the devil. Call it temptation. Call it sin waiting to happen. Call it the fat that satisfies. Call it the meaning of life, butter. But as you go by that bakery, the aroma wafts. And I smell that smell of baking bread and sugar and butter. (laughs) And before I know it, a fresh almond croissant has passed my lips. (laughs) This is a very temporal illustration of the aroma of God, you see, pleasing. Beautiful. The aroma, the smell, the draw of the story of God has given us in Jesus Christ. I know this is heresy, but it's like butter—only better. Only better. So, is this story still compelling? Does it still call us to anything? Is the embodiment of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the image of God in the people created by God, is it still compelling? Does it hint at who we belong to? Does it suggest what our value might be or where we might live? Does it move us to organize our lives in any kind of meaningful way around this story? A couple of hymns came to mind when I thought of that. The first one was, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and I'll grant you this isn't so theocentric as it is Christocentric, but there's a line in verse 4, that comes to my mind over and over and over again. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Soul, life, all. That's for the hymn writer what the story demands Sing it with me Love so amazing So divine Demands my soul My life My own There's another hymn Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word, I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord Thou, my great Father, and I, thy true Son, Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Jesus' prayer in John Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, High King of heaven. My treasure thou art. That was written in the 700s by an Irishman and continues to speak to us today, 1300 years later. It speaks because it gets at this question is this story worth organizing my life about and around? How might God be embodied, imaged in such a way that I can appreciate who God is? And once I get to the embodiment of creation, humankind, and once I get to the story of Jesus said in that, how might the story of Christ be embodied? And we'll get to that next week. How might the story of the Spirit be my story? How might my life as one who claims Christianity and the name of Christ embody and image the one who created all things? I would like to invite our deacons forward. Please remember your tithes, your offerings to budget, and of course, the Prison Bible Program. Thank you. May we go forth, Lord, ready to proclaim the good news of God, ready to live out the image that we've been created in, ready to take the name of the one sent who reveals to us perfectly the Father. And so bless your people, Lord. Amen.